What does it mean to be the church in the world? That's the topic of our sermon today. What does it mean to be the church in the world? In order to answer that question, we have to have some kind of common understanding about the, what the word church means. So I ask this, what is the church? Some of you might be thinking if this guy up here doesn't know what a church is, he's probably the wrong person to deliver the message this morning. So I want to assure you that the secondary definition of a building to worship God in that we are doing right now, yes, that is a church. But church as it's used in the Bible comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which means to be called out, to be called out in order to gather. And we gather in order to praise and worship God. The church is the people of God assembled. And in a broad sense, church refers to all Christians everywhere. It is the church universal. As God calls his people to himself, he gives them a new name, a new identity. He gives them a sense of belonging. He creates He created us not only to live in relationship to himself, but also to live in community with each other. To live and act as one body, here on earth, now, in the present, not just in some distant future. This is why Paul explains that each member of the church has been given gifts to use, that he or she needs to use those gifts for the benefit of the assembly, not for personal enjoyment or advancement. He tells us that in Romans Chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. Our gifts are given to us so that others will benefit from them. Heidelberg Catechism number 55 says, Each member should consider it a duty to use these gifts readily and cheerfully for the service and enrichment of the other members. Paul also gives us instruction on how we are to live in community together well. He gives us Instructions to the elders and deacons about how they are to use their positions and spiritual authority to bless and encourage the community. He encourages us to continue to give each other grace after failure, after failure, after failure. He teaches us that we are to discipline each other to preserve the integrity of the church. I'm part of a small group of six guys, and we began meeting a few years ago to understand a good communal response to COVID protocols. Some of us were church board members, others were school board members, but we all had a need for a place to think about what a proper response was, and we were not united. We had views all over the map, as I'm sure that many in this community felt just as divided with some of their neighbors over that as we felt. Our discussions eventually brought us to the point where we could respectfully challenge each other's opinions. Our goal was not to prove each other wrong or right. We needed a place to process. In time, we grew in respect for each other. And eventually we became friends. And since that awkward meeting a couple years ago, we've discussed a variety of topics. 
Most recently, we were looking at what does it mean to be the church in the world? So today I want to think about this question with you. What does it mean to be the church in the world? Not as somebody that went through this discussion and has it all figured out, but as a fellow Christian trying to learn to honor God. Our text this morning is from Matthew 23. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 and then 23 through 28. And I invite you to turn your Bibles there this morning. But before we read, let's go to our God in prayer. By your power, Lord, you have raised Jesus Christ from death to life. Through his victory over the grave, we are set free from the bonds of sin and fear of death to share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. In his rising to life, you promise eternal life to all who believe in him. We pray that as we open your word in faith, we shall know the risen Christ among us. Amen. Matthew chapter 23, starting with verses 1 through 7, and then we'll go to 23 through 28. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, Teachers of the law and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside are full of the greed and selfish indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of, de of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are filled with hypocrisy and wickedness. May God bless the reading of his word. This text recounts for us a teaching that Jesus gave to the crowds about hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Jesus charges the teachers of the law with failing to meet the law's intent, even though they paid close attention to the letter of the law. He warns that the Pharisees made a habit of looking for ways to be recognized, to seek privilege. But 
they seemed to lack the spiritual insight to apply it in ways that honored God and was consistent with Scripture. In verse 23, Jesus clearly states his charge. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you neglect the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Notice that Jesus does not say that the law is bad. Rather, he makes the point that more than anything else, God wants our hearts to be full of love toward him and toward our neighbors. Few of you here this morning were raised in the Christian Reformed Church and probably learned the fourth commandment at a young age. It says this, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, or your animals, or the alien within your gates. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. In this commandment, God builds on the principle of of Sabbath that he established in creation. In the Jewish culture of Jesus' day, people were judged by how they kept Sabbath observance. The original intent was that the outward expression of submitting to God's command, keeping the Sabbath, reflected the inner attitude of the heart and the individual families. But over time, the heart of the commandment got lost. The focus became more on people trying to live according to a bunch of rules so that they would remain in God's favor. Importantly here, Jesus never contradicts the law that his Father commands. What he does do is to get at the heart of the issue. Jesus compares the Pharisees to both whitewashed tombs and a cup that is washed on the outside only. At another point, Jesus rebukes those who criticize his healing and grain picking. The Sabbath, he says was created for mankind, not mankind, to serve the Sabbath. Reminding that it is always acceptable to do good. I remember a conversation that I had several years ago with a man who moved to my town. He believed in God, but he was still sorting through all of the questions about life. One day he received a stern rebuke because... His lawnmower made an appearance on a Sunday afternoon. And because of that conversation, he withdrew from the church. His frustration was that even though he believed in God, Sunday was the only day he had to mow his lawn. He couldn't afford to have somebody pay it. But that stern rebuke, the keeping the letter of the law, pushed him away from having a chance to grow in that community. In the early 2000s, I lived over in Bad Axe. I don't know how many people in this part of the state are familiar with where Bad Axe is, but if you get out your Michigan map, it's located 
in the middle of the thumb. I was at eating supper at an elder's house one Sunday afternoon, and I looked out the window, and I saw two haybines going. This is a little bit unusual growing up in McBain. I never saw that. So I asked him, is this common for people to be working in the fields on Sunday? And he shot me a devilish grin, and he said, don't worry, I got two Seventh-day Adventist brothers to do the work for me. (laughs) And even though that was a clever workaround, the heart of the issue was not addressed. But this morning our message is not about how to properly keep the Sabbath, nor is it about the hypocrisy that religious people have shown throughout the ages. Our focus is about what it means to be the church in the world. Matthew 23 plays a part in this because it highlights for us the tension that exists between how people are expected to live, their redeemed selves, and who they really are. Those who had been raised to know God's law were expected to live their lives as exemplars to their community. But we find throughout Jesus' ministry that he flips this concept on its head. It is only those who have experienced the transforming power of the Holy Spirit who are commended, while the teachers of the law are rebuked. In my small group discussion, when we talked about what it means to be the church in the world, it didn't take us long to identify that tension that was present in Jesus' day (laughs) still exists in our own communities now. There are those who are professing Christians in our community who do many of the right things. They know what the Bible says. They attend public worship regularly. Their children are all baptized and they have a firm commitment to Christian education. But when we drill down deeper, we find that while the outside appearance is desirable, there's a lack of fruit in that person's life. To be sure, All of the things I mentioned above are good and even desirable, but what's more important? That we know how to live rightly or that we live rightly out of gratitude for what God has done for us? In my civilian work, I have the opportunity to travel around the state and visit many dairy farms. For me, and hopefully for you, it's helpful to put Jesus' critique in this context of farming In the spring of the year, it is common for dairy farmers who have smaller, older barns to have their walls whitewashed. This is done typically in stanchion barns and tie stall barns, the thing of yesterday, not so much the common practice in the modern dairy. But that practice of whitewashing the walls is still done on some of those smaller farms. The idea was that Bright lights and swept floors and freshly painted walls promote a more hygienic environment for which to harvest milk intended for human consumption. That's how the law reads, anyway. Suffice it to say that the law considered whitewashed walls clean. Let's now consider the physiological effect that milking has on a dairy cow. There's a hormone called oxytocin that allows mammals to let down their milk. In cattle, 
this same hormone affects cows in such a way that encourages their natural metabolic process. So that once a cow leaves her stall and begins walking, it causes her to expel fertilizer. As this occurs, it has an aerosol effect that splatters and collects on all surfaces of the barn, including the walls. So even if there's a fresh coat of paint covering the evidence of filth, we know what lies just beneath the surface. And I think all of us in here would have a hard time calling that wall clean. Another time, I was called out to a dairy farm to help them achieve their milk quality goals. When I pulled in the drive, the farm was beautiful. The lawn was freshly mowed, their utility room was well-organized, and the milk house and parlor were well cared for. From all appearances, this farm had everything together. But after their wash cycle was open, I opened up their pipeline and I discovered a cheesy film inside. No matter how much attention the farm took to appear clean, the fact that the inside of their pipeline's dirty meant that they had neglected the most important part. The reality of our circumstance is that we live in a barn that has been inhabited by sin and filth. When cows inhabit a barn, there is evidence of their presence long after they have left. And our world has been tainted by the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. They ate of the fruit and rebelled against God. And since that time, all of the world has felt the effects of sin. When a person takes a shower, puts on clean clothes, and goes into now what we would call a clean barn, even if no cows are present, they come out smelling like the filth that is still in that barn. Its effect is so vast that it permeates all aspects and areas of our lives. The only way that we can truly become clean is through the transforming power of Jesus Christ. He calls us when we are in the middle of the barn of life, stinking from the powerful evidence of sin in our lives and the sin in this world. Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. From this verse, we learn several important things. God calls sinful people and not those people who have everything together. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, Jesus says, but it's the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Even when Jesus calls his disciples, the would-be leaders of the church, he doesn't call perfect people doesn't even call polished people. He calls, calls people who recognize their own inadequacies, their own failure, those who recognize that they stink from the sin of life. All of us, all of this must be recognized before we begin to understand what it means to be the church in the world. So now I want to get to point number one. 
I know that it's been a long time to get to point number one. It won't take so long to get to point two and to point three. Point number one, we all have a common beginning. You may be thinking, no, I told you that. We are all born sinners. We all have a common beginning. We are all born sinners in need of a Savior. There is no amount of goodness, righteousness, or holy living that we can do to earn God's love and His acceptance. Again, Paul's teaching is useful here. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. Point number two. We live in the tension between the already and the not yet. Even though Christ has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and set me free from the tyranny of the devil, we are still living in a world that is dealing with the stinking effects of sin. Even though, by God's grace, many of us here have experienced transformation in our lives and are fully devoted followers of Christ, this doesn't mean that we have it all together. We still all must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Early on I mentioned that I chose Matthew 23 as our text because it highlights the tension that exists between uh, doing what the teaching of the law requires and living with a broken and contrite heart. This tension might also be understood in comparing two well-known passages, Mark 12, 30-31 and Matthew 28, 19 and 20. The former tells us that we are to love God with all that is within us and to love our neighbor as ourselves. The second command is to make disciples as we go about our lives. There's an incredible charge and challenge that is present to the Christians here. We are to love people even though we ourselves are woefully inadequate. I don't know how many of you have ever tried to teach a class or teach a new employee. When you're in the process of teaching somebody something, you become painfully aware of your own ignorance. I always say that if you want somebody to learn something, have them teach it to somebody else. Because if you know it that well, then you've got it. But during that process, we certainly discover how much we don't know. If you haven't tried this, pick a subject and start talking to a young child. Pretty soon you'll come up with questions like, what does this word mean? I've never heard it said like that before. Who's done that in the past? And the wheels will start turning, and you will begin learning. Point number three. Do not hold unbelievers to the same standard as believers. Our culture today has normalized a pattern of communication that is neither unifying or helpful. Culture says that when we find someone who disagrees with us, we should make every effort to discredit their view, their character, and their concerns. But what does the Bible tell us about this? In Psalm 131.1, it says, How good and pleasant it is 
for God's people to dwell together in unity. But let's be honest, folks. We struggle with this. We're not very good at remaining unified within the church, so how on earth can we be expected to have meaningful relationships outside the church where we are free to challenge and to be challenged? Not only are we, the church, called to love our neighbors as ourselves, we're expected to even go a step further. In Matthew 5, 43-48, Jesus famously ups the ante in Christian, in Christian living. He says, You have heard it said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you to love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. When Christ calls for us to love those who oppose us, He reminds us the state in which we were when He found us. Dead in our sins and our transgressions. Stinking from the filth in the barn. So what does it mean to be the church in the world? It means that we are all walking through the barn of life together. Sinners in need of a Savior. It means also that we are saints who are being redeemed. We have not yet arrived at some glorious state. We're in that transformation process. We ought to have a standard of holy living that demonstrates that we are continually being transformed by the Holy Spirit while we seek to make life on earth here on earth now and not in some distant future as it is in heaven. Our holy living should not be done in effort to look the part of the Christian. Being a Christian on the outward should only be the fruit by, be demonstrated by the fruit of a life that is surrendered to God. It means that the church, as the church, we have a responsibility to love and encourage those around us to seek after Christ. This responsibility is to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors, and as Christ put it, even to our enemies. We pray for God's help in all of this as He is the only one that can give us the strength to do this. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father in heaven, we love you and adore you. We praise you for rescuing us in our sins and in our transgressions. You found us when we couldn't come to you so covered in sin. Yet you loved us. You saw what you created us for. You knew the purposes you had in mind for us before the beginning of the earth. And you're still drawing those who you've called nearer and nearer to you. Help us, Lord, to not become callous and complacent in doing good but to have a heart that is surrendered to you, that seeks after you, that yearns for you, so that our souls may be revived, 
and that what people see on the outside isn't an act of trying to act Christian, but rather genuine love that comes from deep within us, that it all may point to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.